0: Let's treat God's word with reverence now as we come before his word with great humility and faith. Before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Lord God, as we meditate now on scripture, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit who breathed out this, your holy, inerrant, infallible word, that we might rightly hear and obey. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. We are continuing our sermon series that we began last week on the book of Jonah. Uh, We will be reading starting where we left off last week in verse 4 of chapter 1, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and if the Lord wills, uh, we will spend... A couple of Sundays looking at these verses, but here now, the word of God, it is written. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us. Our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Last Sunday we looked at the first three verses of the book of Jonah. And we found there the divine directive given to Jonah by God to go to Nineveh and call out against those who dwelt in Nineveh for their wickedness. We also found there Jonah's deliberate disobedience as he sought to flee from God's presence by going in the exact opposite direction. We read in verse 3, he, Jonah, went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now Jonah might have thought that he was just simply going to escape from God's call over his life. That somehow in getting away from God's presence in the temple and away from God's people in Israel. That he would be able to live free from what God had instructed him to do. That simply wasn't true for Jonah though. And it isn't true for us either. It isn't like we can simply flee from God and by doing so trump his holy will, and nor will he allow our disobedience in sin to go unresolved. We see in the text this morning that the fare that Jonah paid to get on that boat was not the only expense That would come as a result of running from God. There is a far greater cost for his disobedience. And this is what we're going to look at this morning in the remaining verses of chapter 1. There are three aspects of this that we are going to examine in this passage this morning. First, we're going to look at the personal cost of sin, second, we're going to look at the communal cost of sin. And third, we're going to look at what finally calms the storm caused by Jonah's sin. And from that, we're going to see the great cost that God pays for sin. So first, let's look at the personal cost of sin. God had given Jonah a divine directive in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh. Verse 3 begins, but Jonah rose to flee. And then in verse 4, we find these words. But the Lord. As that boat that Jonah boarded to Tarshish pulled out of dock, Jonah might have thought that he had managed to get away clean. And perhaps even thought that he had found some sort of divine favor since he had so effortlessly found a ship heading in the opposite direction. And we find Jonah in verse 3 exhausted, and maybe extremely relieved going down into the boat where he would fall fast asleep. It was the sleep of one who believed himself to be safe. And the first three words of verse four, though, inform us of the true reality Jonah was not safe, he was in grave danger. The Lord had allowed Jonah to get onto that boat unhindered, but Jonah's illusion of being able to escape from the Lord, of being able to dismiss the Lord's calling on his life, of of getting away with his deliberate disobedience without any repercussions was going to quickly come to an end. The reality is that our sin always catches up with us. Our sin always catches up with us. As Numbers 32, 23 states, be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. And this is exactly what we find here in these verses. Jonah's sin is exposed. And the consequences of Jonah's sin were immediate and dramatic, in the words of the late Timothy Keller. Verse 4 states, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The word in the Hebrew translated here as hurled means, as you might assume, to throw something. Uh, To throw a javelin, for instance. God had sent a laser-guided missile right at Jonah. And this is what this storm is. It is a precision strike against Jonah, which would not miss its mark. God is in sovereign control of all of his creation, as scripture attests. And we do not need to miss here that God was using the storm as an instrument of his discipline. Jonah would not be escaping. He would now be awakened from his slumber and faced with the consequence of of his sin, Jonah's sin was being found out, exposed, disciplined through this storm. And the lesson for us here is that our sin will catch up with us as well sooner or later. Proverbs 16, verse five states, "Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished." And since pride is the root of all sin, this proverb is telling us that there are no sins that will be overlooked by God. One of two things happens. Either we are unbelievers and we will face God's wrath against our sins, perhaps in limited ways in this life, but ultimately in the eternal punishment that we will face when we are cast into the outer darkness of hell, or... Or we are members of God's family by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And God will discipline us in his love for us. This is what scripture promises. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 states, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God will not allow us as his children to continue to move away from him in a way that brings dishonor to him and destruction to us. He will not allow us as his children to reject the call he has placed on our lives, but that means that he responds to our rebellion in disobedience with a severe mercy meant to shake us from our sin lead us to repentance and reliance upon him and bring us into alignment with his will for us. And this is what God was doing to Jonah when he hurled that storm at him. Jonah had attempted to resign his calling as a prophet. He had refused to go to Nineveh to speak God's truth to them. He decided instead to go live as an unbeliever in a pagan land. But God did not accept his resignation. God would not allow Jonah to refuse this calling. And we see here God preventing Jonah from carrying out his own plans. And in Jonah's case, God didn't allow him to get very far. Sometimes this is true of us, sometimes our sin comes with immediate and dramatic consequences. We might try to run in the other direction. From a hard calling the Lord has given to us. And and He might allow us to pursue a venture away from this calling only to get us there and have everything fall apart. Or or it might be that we get caught doing whatever sinful thing it was and immediately face the consequences that come as a result. For instance, there will more than likely be swift and harsh consequences if you get caught cheating on your spouse. There there will be swift and harsh consequences if you get caught embezzling money. There will be swift and harsh consequences if you get caught driving under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Uh, But we do need to understand that this is not always the case. Uh, Perhaps it isn't even usually the case. Sometimes the consequences don't come until much later. I could eat really unhealthy foods without any obvious negative result until much later it isn't an all of a sudden type of thing it is a gradual thing that takes time to fully realize and we might think that we've gotten away with it until that day comes when you go to the doctor and discover that you have diabetes or heart disease and then it's too late as a great scottish pastor and theologian hugh martin wrote the lord can afford to wait You can trespass against him and pass on apparently unpunished. But the path along which you pass has the punishment lining both sides of it. And looming dark at some fixed point further on. We felt fine, but we weren't. And one day we wake up with chest pain. Someone, for example, could get away with telling lies for a while before they finally get trapped in their lies and exposed as a liar. Timothy Keller gives this example. When you indulge yourself in bitter thoughts, it feels so satisfying to fantasize about payback. But slowly and surely, it will enlarge your capacity for self-pity erodes your ability to trust and enjoy relationships, and generally drain the happiness out of your daily life. Sin always hardens the conscience, locks you in the prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations, and eats you up slowly from the inside. And for you, it might not be bitterness that leads to a vengeful and unforgiving spirit. It might be lust. It might be greed or gluttony or sloth. Some of these are acceptable sins in the culture around us. But there is a reason why these are called deadly sins. Because they slowly but surely eat away at us like cancer. And eventually all of these sins catch up with us and are exposed. As Timothy Keller stated, all sin has a mighty storm attached to it. And this might include worldly consequences. If you act out of vengeance, and you might find yourself in prison. If you act out of lust, and you might find yourself facing divorce. If you act out of gluttony, then you might find yourself plagued with illness. But there is a spiritual side to all of these things. And if we are children of God, the Lord and his love will expose these sins in our lives and allow us to face some form of consequence in order to root them out from us. God will not allow his children to prosper in their sins. He will find a way to halt you in your sinful path. In his own timing, he will determine an effective means of discipline, which is aimed at reducing the power of sin over your heart at helping you to develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility, self-control. For Jonah, it was a storm at sea. But it could take the form of a job loss, or an illness, or spiritual depression, or a prison sentence. Whatever it is, it will be executed with pinpoint accuracy to save us from our sinful folly. But if we truly belong to God, then we need to see this form of discipline as God's mercy. As one commentator puts it so well, he pursues us because he loves us and desires to draw us back to himself. As Presbyterian Pastor and commentator Richard Phillips states, Jonah is not the story of a man who was blessed by remaining in God's will, but rather a man who was used mightily of God despite his unbelief in sin because of God's sovereign grace in his life. Jonah's message is not even that we avoid all folly and rebellion, though we should, but rather that when we have strayed, we should respond to the grace of God that calls us to repentance and new obedience. When we face that storm that finally comes as a result of sin, we we might not immediately see it as a grace, but hopefully we will come to that truth and have humility to repent and return to the Lord. Now, one thing I do want to note before moving on is that not every storm we face Not every difficulty we experience in this life is a result of our sin. Uh, The storm and the story of Jonah is a clear consequence of his sin, but Scripture also makes very clear that the hardships that Job faced were not a result of his sin. Uh, Job's friends are shown to offer very bad advice for insisting that he must have done something to anger God. In fact, the whole book of Job reveals to us that you can live a righteous life and still have things go very poorly for you. As Timothy Keller stated, most often the storms of life come upon us not as a consequence of a particular sin, but as the unavoidable consequence of living in a fallen, troubled world. And because of this, sometimes we are caught up in storms that others have caused, we see that in, here in Jonah too. The sailors become, in a way, collateral damage. Uh, sometimes we are collateral damage for the sins of those around us. Uh, but we need to understand that the same can be true of our sin as well. Our sin doesn't just hurt us. Uh, there aren't just consequences for us. It can, and it does very frequently, cause harm to others. And with this in mind, we get to another way in which sin is costly. It is costly in a communal sense. This is our second point. Now, sometimes people in their sin intend to hurt others. They act out of anger or jealousy or malice, and their aim is to inflict injury on someone else. This wasn't the case for Jonah, though. Sometimes it isn't our intention to hurt others. We are just acting sinfully and selfishly, and others get Pulled into our mess. I've watched families and communities destroyed because of the indiscretion of one person. One person's lie. One person's infidelity. One person's greed. One person's anger. One person's selfish and stupid, sinful choice. And families suffer. Friendships suffer. Work relationships suffer. Innocent bystanders suffer. I'm sure that many of you can think of many instances in this regard. Jonah's attempt to run from God threatened to destroy an entire crew of sailors. And we could consider how the loss of those individuals would have affected many, many other people, the the wives and children of those sailors, the, the merchants who had goods on that ship, those who were relying on receiving the cargo that the ship was carrying. And as the story of Jonah highlights how one person's sin can be so harmful to everyone around him or her, I think it's important to especially consider for us the communal cost of sin in the community of God's people. Dearly beloved, sin is serious and the unrepentant sin of one member of the community can and will affect the community as a whole. Sin can poison the peace Purity and unity of a church. Sin can create a cancer that spreads and infects others in the church community. And this is precisely why Scripture warns us against allowing unrepentant sin to continue to exist unchecked in the community of God's people. We see this in other examples in Scripture. For instance, we have Achan's sin in Joshua after the battle of Jericho. His disobedience hurts all of Israel. One rotten apple can spoil the whole bushel. Or the illustration given in Scripture is that a little leaven can work its way through the whole lump. And just as the sin of one person can destroy a family, the same is true of the church family. I have watched one church just recently be decimated because a few individuals became upset over a matter, and instead of seeking to resolve it in a Christian manner, they decided to slander and spread gossip about another individual in that community. And not a few members left the church over that ordeal. It it has affected that church's ministry. It has affected that church's witness in the community. It's something that's going to take years for that church to recover from. Dearly beloved, this is what sin does. It tosses the boat and threatens to smash it to pieces. So what does scripture advise? Very simply, very simply, confront the sinner, rebuke the sin, encourage repentance. The New Testament is especially insistent on this. This is why Jesus, what Jesus instructs in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Dearly beloved, we are to take sin seriously. We are to hold ourselves and one another accountable. And even as a goal of confronting sin in the Christian community is always for the sake of restoring the sinner, Jesus indicates that there might be times when drastic measures are required, like cutting off the cancer, removing the sinner from the church, excommunication. Jesus instructed this, and we find the Apostle Paul following his example in places like 1 Corinthians 5. There's a great cost of sin in the community and it must be handled with all seriousness. ultimately in the story of Jonah the only thing that will restore the peace of the sailors is to cast Jonah out. Uh, Just as he was the cause of God hurling a storm at them the sailors hurled Jonah overboard. And this gets us to our third and final point. So third and finally let's look at what ultimately brings an end to the storm caused by sin. We see here the great cost of sin to God. The sailors recognized that the storm that they were facing was not just another natural event. It was not just a chance occurrence. Notice how these sailors immediately recognized there was something strange about the storm. They, They began immediately crying out to their gods. They began taking decisive action to try to save their ship. They sought to discern, as it says in verse 7, whose account this evil has come upon us. And the likelihood was that they recognized this because the storm was out of season. As we saw toward the end of our sermon series through Acts, there was a season in which sailors knew not to sail on the Mediterranean. They knew that there was a, a stormy season and they avoided it. So, in the same way that we might know something supernatural was going on, if a hurricane formed in the Atlantic in the middle of January, these sailors knew that something supernatural was happening by the timing of this storm. And even though the sailors did not know the God of Israel, they nonetheless recognized that this storm was a result of divine activity, the untimeliness. The, the speed, the fury with which the storm came at them was a clear indication of divine wrath, which is why they got to work figuring out who among them was responsible. And so they cast lots for this purpose. And God uses this to expose Jonah. Now we're going to get more into the actions of the ship's crew next Sunday, but we want to simply see this morning how they confronted Jonah over the reality of his responsibility for this storm. They did what we should do in the church when we discover unrepentant sin that is causing disruption and corruption in the body. And when he was confronted, Jonah was forced to acknowledge his responsibility. We see this in verse 10 in which the sailors respond to Jonah, saying, "What is this that you have done? For the men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah had been exposed. His sin had been revealed. And the sailors ask him in verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? You see that the storm wasn't easing up. It was only becoming more and more violent according to this passage. And how Jonah responded to this question is significant. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah offered himself up as a sacrifice. Now, now, Jonah says nothing of God here. There isn't any clear sign of repentance. He doesn't say, I've sinned against my God and against all of you, and I deserve to die. No, he, he doesn't say that, but clearly he seems concerned about how his presence there has put the sailors at great risk. Perhaps he is motivated by nothing more than pity here. We should remember, though, that up until this point, Jonah has shown utter disregard for others. He didn't care about those in Nineveh. He despised them. He wanted them to be destroyed by God, and he has also endangered those on this ship by making them accomplices to his attempt to escape from God's presence. We should recognize here, however, that when he is brought face-to-face with the pagans and forced to share with them in the Lord's discipline, he began to have a changed attitude. He began to have a heart for them. And maybe, just maybe, this was part of the lesson that the Lord was teaching him through this discipline. It was a means by which the Lord was turning Jonah's heart to repentance. And surely, if Jonah had any heart at all, then it was not lost on him that the sailors didn't immediately throw him overboard when he revealed to them that it was on his account that they found themselves in the midst of this storm. We see in the text that they tried every other means to save the ship and themselves before finally throwing Jonah overboard. But here's a lesson that the Lord has for us. Regardless of the motivation... Jonah provides for us the ultimate pattern for love, substitutionary sacrifice. Jonah is willing to take the wrath of the storm. He is willing to be cast into the waves in order that the sailors might be spared. He demonstrates true love by meeting the needs of others regardless of the cost to himself. And even though it was not the sailors who deserved to die, but Jonah, Jonah willingly offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice that God's wrath might pass over them. Jonah is pointing us here to someone greater who would remind us of the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is that he sacrificed himself to save the sailors. But the one who came who was the greater Jonah as he himself attests, would not be cast out for his own sins. No, he was the sinless one, and yet he still stood in the place of those who were perishing. He bore the weight of the sins of others. And unlike Jonah, who sank down into the depths only to be swallowed by a great fish and rescued the one to whom Jonah pointed, would truly die. He would go into the depth of the grave for three days. And we know exactly who that man is, Jesus Christ. As one theologian states, what Jonah could not do, but his attitude announces is done by Jesus Christ. He, it is, who accepts total condemnation. Jonah is not Jesus Christ, but he is one of the long line of types of Jesus, each representing an aspect of what the Son of God will be in totality. And if it is true that the sacrifice of a man who takes his condemnation to save others around them, then this is far more true when the one sacrificed is the Son of God himself. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. Dearly beloved, do we truly understand and believe that Jesus is the only one who can truly sacrifice himself to save others? It wasn't on his account that we are facing. The storm of God's wrath. It is our own fault. It is due to our own sin. But Jesus sacrifices himself in order that God's wrath might be turned away from us and onto himself. Jesus says in Mark ten forty five, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Tim- Timothy Keller stated, when Jesus Christ came into the world bearing our hue, manatee and later went to the cross bearing our sin he became the greatest example in fulfillment of the pattern of true love substitutionary sacrifice and what has been the result well as soon as jonah is thrown into the sea we are told the sea ceased from its raging and as soon as jesus christ cried out from the cross it is finished God's wrath against our sin had been fully and finally appeased. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath against all those who place faith in him. And in order that we don't have to face one drop of God's wrath against our sins. I pray that we can see how Jonah points to Jesus in this way. I, I pray that we will consider the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, the great cost of our sins to God, which he willingly bears. And I pray that we would understand how we have been enabled to love because of the way in which God has first loved us, that our hearts would be turned to the Lord for the way in which he offered himself for us that he has taken our sin and given, it, given to us his righteousness. That he has taken our poverty and given to us his riches. That he has taken our death and given to us his life. We should be filled with wonder, love, and praise at what God has done for us. And we should consider this when we find ourselves tempted to run from God or when we find ourselves in the middle of a storm caused by our sins, consider the great personal cost of your sins. Consider that great communal cost of your sins. Consider the great cost of your sins to God in Jesus Christ, and repent, believe, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the sign of Jonah that we find here in your word. Lord, help us to see our sin as it is. Help us to see the sinfulness of our sin, Lord, and to turn away from it, to turn to you, who has, in your great love and mercy, given yourself for us, suffering the shame of the cross, bearing the wrath for our sins, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to you. Lord, help us to live in reconciled relationship and commit ourselves to serve you all the days of our lives. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe?